So, hello, this is Into the Greenwood. I'm Rosie. And I'm Cathy. And today we're looking at the Black Bull of Norway for the National Storytelling Week. So for this week, we're doing something every single day. So uh, I hope you enjoy the ride with us. So today we're looking at the Black Bull of Norway, which is an interesting story. It's quite long. It has a lot of it has a lot of variations and a lot of small interesting elements to it. And we've done our best to tackle it. <laughs> so we hope you we hope you enjoy. Once, a long time ago in Norway, there lived three sisters. The day came when the eldest sister said to their mother, Mother, bake me a bannock and roast me a collop, for I'm off to seek my fortune. Her mother did so, and the eldest daughter set off for the cottage of an old witch, who bade her look out the back door of the cottage. Two days passed with not to see, but on the third day along came a coach and six. Yon's for you, said the old witch, and so the eldest daughter was swept away into the coach. Next, the middle daughter ventured to the witch's cottage with a bannock and a collop. She received the same advice, and on the third day saw a coach and four, which she swiftly left with. Finally, it was the youngest daughter's turn to do as her sisters had before her, but on her third day at the witch's cottage, she was aggrieved to see a monstrous black bull coming along the road. Weeping and trembling with fear, she was lifted onto the bull's back, and the two set off. They travelled for a long, long time, and the girl began to hunger till she was nearly faint with it. Take food from my left ear, said the bull, and drink from my right. Bewildered, the girl did as he bade her, and found herself magically refreshed. They rode and rode, the girl eating and drinking as she pleased, until they reached a great and beautiful castle. This is the home of my eldest brother, said the bull. We will stay here tonight. They received the girl graciously at the castle, lifting her down from the bull's back and housing him in the stable. When morning came, they took her to the parlour and presented her with the most beautiful apple she had ever seen. Do not break it, she was told, until you are in the greatest strait of your mortal life. Then the girl was lifted back onto the bull's back and the two set off once more. The second night, the bull took them to the home of his next brother, a castle even grander than the first. They were welcomed once again, and the next morning the girl was presented with the finest pair she had ever seen, and told not to break it until she was in the greatest strait of her life, before being placed onto the bull's back once more, and sent onward. Next they came to the home of the bull's youngest brother, and it was the greatest by far. Yet again they were welcomed, and yet again the girl was presented with a gift, the bonniest plum she had ever seen. Once again she was told not to break it unless in the greatest straits of her mortal life. Then she was placed back on the bill's back, and they journeyed on. For a long time they rode and rode until they came to a barren and brooding glen. The girl slid off the bill's back and sat down on a stone. Here you must stay while I go to fight the old one, said the bull. Move not a hand nor a foot, or I will not be able to find you come morning. If the sky turns blue, you will know I have bested the old one, but if the sky turns red, you will know he has conquered me. So the girl sat, moving not even her eyes, until all about her turned blue. Overjoyed by the bull's triumph, she shifted where she sat, and so when the bull returned to look for her, 
he could not find her. She stayed and waited a long, long time, weeping for she knew he could not come. At long last she got to her feet and began to walk. She walked and walked until she came to a hill of glass. Try as she might, she could not climb it, for its slopes were sheer and slippery. She walked all about the bottom of the hill and hoped she might find a passage over, but she came instead to a smith's house. If you serve me seven years, said the smith, I will make you a pair of iron shoes so as you can climb the hill. And so she did. At the end of the seven years, the smith did as promised and presented her with a pair of iron shoes, which soon saw her over the hill. On the other side, she came to the cottage of an old washerwoman, and who should be staying with her but a gallant young knight? Though he was now in human form, the girl knew him at once to be her beau, though he seemed not to know her. The washerwoman told her that the knight had given them his bloody clothes and promised to marry whoever could get the stain out. The washerwoman and her daughter had laboured for hours, but to no avail. As soon as the girl, now a young woman, put her hands in the water, the stains melted away. When asked who had brought out the stain, the washerwoman told the knight that it was her daughter. So the knight and the washerwoman's daughter were to be married, and the young woman was beside herself with grief. Remembering her apple, she brought it out and broke it. It had been filled with gold and jewels, the richest she had ever seen. When the washerwoman's daughter saw these, she wanted them, and the young woman made a bargain with her. I will give you all these jewels if you will but put your marriage off for one day, and let me go alone to his room at night. The washerwoman's daughter agreed, but her mother was cunning, and gave the knight a sleeping draught. He stirred not while the young woman sat in his room and sobbed and sang. The next day she knew not what else to do, so she broke the pair. Inside was jewellery far richer than that of the apple. The washerwoman's daughter's greed was not yet sated, and so the young woman bargained for a second night. But once again the washerwoman had given him a sleeping draught, and as the young woman sang, he slept on. Now the young woman was nearly lost to despair, but on that third day, while the knight was out hunting, one of his companions asked what was the cause of all the singing and sobbing coming from his bedchamber. The knight was baffled and resolved to stay awake that night. Fearing this may be her last chance, the young woman broke the plum and beheld the richest jewellery of all. With this she bartered for a third night. When the washerwoman brought the knight his sleeping draught, he sent her away for some honey to sweeten it. Then, while she was gone, poured it out. That night, when they had all gone to bed again, the young woman sang, Seven long years I served for thee, the glassy hill I clung for thee, thy bloody clothes I rang for thee, and wilt thou not waken and turn to me? Upon hearing her voice, he at once remembered her, and turned to her. They shared stories of all that had befallen them these past seven years, and quickly agreed to marry. The washerwoman and her daughter were burnt, and the young woman and the knight lived happily thereafter. Okay, so on a scale of trout of knowledge to cannibalistic water horse, how would you rate this tale? <laughs> Ooh. I this is the problem with the scale always being so strange. I'm never sure which end of the scale <laughs> is, is the good one. Um, yeah. <laughs> I think for the sheer drama, 
of this story, uh, I'm going to have to go on the cannibalistic water horse side. I think specifically I'm feeling, I'm feeling the horror that you must feel noticing kelp in a man, <laughs> you know, that you're playing with. Yeah. Weird. A bad time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think that's a fair rating. Kind of strangely interesting, but probably bad, mm. you know? It's definitely, I would say, as a good description for this story, it's definitely a twist that you don't expect in that kind of situation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, you know, maybe it leads to good. Maybe it's just incredibly strange and something you have to just think about for several days and you never have a complete answer. So... So that said... <laughs> that said, that super optimistic and uh, promising introduction to the discussion, uh, done with. Mm-hmm. Let's jump into the story. <laughs> yeah. So, first thing I sort of pointed out was just the very classic use of the number three with the three sisters at the start. And mm-hmm. we have it get like it comes in again with the three brothers, but irritatingly, there are four brothers if you include the bull, and that annoys me. But then we, if, if we, mm-hmm. I just I can't help thinking it would be a much cooler story if the third castle they visit is his castle and it's like empty and abandoned or something. Oh, yeah, that would be much cooler. Um, I mean. You then run into the problem of who gives the gift at this abandoned castle. But she could just take something. And it can be like, you know, this is originally hers because they're married now. Like, it's she has an appropriate claim to it. Or maybe there's a kind of Alfred-style butler there <laughs> who gives it to her. <laughs> Man. <laughs> but my immediate thought when you said Alfred was like King Alfred, Unified <laughs> England in like the early hundreds. I just um no, that was so confusing to me. Um, I mean, to be honest, I don't I don't even trust myself that I've gotten the name of Batman's butler correct, so <laughs> if, you, if you mean the Batman butler, it it is Alfred, I think. Okay. I'm like eighty percent sure. Um, <laughs> yeah no so an ancient butler who gives her the uh the treasure that would work yeah yeah <laughs> so that's my first note um mm-hmm. you know folktale tellers of yore like jot that down mm-hmm. um, um you can't just have three and then change it to four <laughs> um yeah i mean this whole story really commits to the idea of a rule of three. I mean, I was thinking about it in terms of it's what they say about the best pieces of music, that like it's repetitive enough for it to be familiar and feel comforting, but it has enough capacity for change that it still feels fresh and engaging and you don't get bored. So I guess that's the point. Like You have two the same and then the change happens. Yeah, and it it gives us that sort of um, mini self-contained kind of three-act structure where, Mm -hmm. like, all is lost, all is lost, 
it's not going like we're gonna try oh no oh no oh no it's really bad and yay we won yeah and you wouldn't get that kind of um you catastrophe feeling yeah. with just two or so it does yeah. it does have that yeah you need to have the progressive raising of the stakes um I have to say, I enjoy that in this variant, like, the witch's house is just there. Everybody knows about it. She's not even a mean witch, as far as we can tell. We don't know how much control she has over who appears at the back door of the cottage. Um, yeah. <laughs> fascinating. She's just like, well, well, that's your fate. I don't make the rules. I just live here. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I also thought it was gently interesting that the first daughter gets a coach and six and then the next one a coach and four. So like mm. it's it's getting slightly worse. And then the next time it's just It's so much worse. A black bull. Just a, an animal. Not even a coach and horses. <laughs> just one. Yeah. Hmm. So I I had um I had like some notes on that um mm -hmm. with some so it has this kind of appearance of going from best to worst and yes. then we find out maybe in the end the bull was the best one and then that would mirror the fact in the rest of the tale we have the castles going from worst to best and the fruit going from worst to best yeah um so like if the secret is that all along the um, coaches on the bill at the start were also going from worst to best, even if it didn't appear so, um, I feel bad for the sisters, but... Um, <laughs> Jeez, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, we, we don't know anything about them um, that means that the eldest daughter might deserve to marry the worst man. Mm. Um, so maybe the true aim is to be the middle daughter you know you kind of maybe you're just life is okay you marry an okay man yeah and you don't have to go through like trauma yeah to, you to marry him have trials and tribulations <laughs> you only have four yeah. horses but you do have a coach so life actually maybe is pretty fine <laughs> uh, more than middling so yeah and then, yeah and then there's another forgot to say there's another worst to best thing with mm -hmm. in quite a lot of the versions it mentions the youngest sister being the most beautiful so again it's like we're going eldest yep. to youngest worst to best in that kind of order yes um it's a very traditional thing you uh you have it in most fairy tales that have siblings the older two are well if they're girls they're specified to be ugly if they're boys they're specified to be maybe lazy or violent or evil um so it's interesting to wonder why we might always be highlighting that the youngest has this kind of unexpected good fortune um, and I was wondering if we could 
see it through the lens of this idea that the inheritance used to go to the first child. So it's actually more important in being the youngest that you have good fortune, as in good luck, because that's all that you have to build your life with. You're not going to inherit the estate, you're not going to get land. Um, if you're very lucky, you might have some money from your parents. Otherwise, it's just whatever your wits can leave you with. Um, so I, I wonder if this is a, a way to try and convey hope to children that know that they're not inheriting <laughs> anything. Um, yeah, I, especially I wonder if you're telling this to very young children and the youngest yeah. feels quite looked over and left yeah. out. If you're telling this story to children, the youngest might be several years younger and might be aware kind of how much of a gap there is in terms of what they can do and reasonably hope for and achieve in comparison. And there might be this sense of inferiority that you might want to try and correct in a story by giving the youngest the best possible outcome, even if it is one at a very uh, severe price. Yeah. I was reading this book recently, and it was a fantasy book, um, but in it there was a boy who had come of age, and his family, they had a certain trade, but um, he was the youngest of like a lot of sons, so the trade had already been passed on to the older ones and the older ones were already passing on the trade to the younger ones. Mm. So he just left and became a sailor instead and entirely left because there was no one to take him. There was no one to teach him his family's trade. And I was like, well, that's very sad. But yeah, I <laughs> wonder if that happened a lot. Yeah, because you wouldn't... You know, you run into serious problems for employment and for the village if you have too many carpenters or something, you know? Yeah. it's You would reach a point where your supply is way higher than your demand and that jeopardises yeah. everybody's income. So on um, the kind of eldest, eldest to youngest progression, um, I thought, because we see that with the sisters then with the brothers and I thought there was kind of a mirroring uh like a sort of true mirroring in the in the first half of the tale we're doing this eldest younger youngest thing and then in the second half that's when she sort of finds her own agency stands on her own feet and grows up so it's kind of this getting smaller towards the middle of the tale and then getting bigger yeah I just kind of wondered if there was a bit of mirroring there with it going eldest middle child youngest child and then she goes from a girl to a young woman to a married woman mm, yeah there's definitely a theme of maturation i suppose you would say mm -hmm. in the story and it makes sense that you would have several different versions i guess you might say of, yeah. of womanhood uh, throughout the story and that you would have yeah. reflections of the different 
cycles of life. I have some things on the moral of the tale which I find kind of leads me going in circles a bit because mm-hmm. it seems to be this kind of, you know, things might not be what they seem, don't judge other people on their appearance, um, the bull is kind and there's he gives you food and there's like jewellery <laughs> inside the fruit and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but then you can read it a lot more sinisterly. Yeah. Because, you know, the youngest daughter still has to be beautiful to be the heroine. Mm-hmm. And there's this kind of element of, which isn't as bad in this tale, but in other kind of Beauty and the Beast style tales I think is worse. There's this element of kind of grooming and telling young women to accept and put up with a beastly husband who frightens her. She thinks he's ugly. Um yeah. Even though she's beautiful, she has to put up with that because she might be able to change him and there might be a prince inside there. Yeah, it's a bit uncomfortable. Yeah. Um I actually was reading an essay about this um type of tale which you can call the search for the lost husband um and which uh, beauty and the beast is a subtype of it uh and it's definitely there are some versions that are a lot more uncomfortable than this one um because say maybe instead of a bull I think there's somewhere he's a tiger so he's like the form that he's in is even more obviously threatening you might say um there's also some there's some parallels to a story called Bluebeard where he's not even a beast he's just a man that murders his wives um yeah i've I've read that one it's very that's definitely the worst variant i think we haven't Mm -hmm. hidden this behind any kind of magical uh shroud um, yeah to to make it easier to discuss uh it's it's Mm -hmm. just murder um and i think what was very interesting about this analytical essay that I was reading was that it was saying how these stories make it clear that these women who are beautiful, particularly in Beauty and the Beast ones, they're very much sold by the father to a beastly man. Um, and that it's interesting because there's a suggestion that these tales were told predominantly by women to younger women to um, some people suggested it was basically to inculcate the social values that you want you know passivity acceptance fidelity to a man that isn't worth it um but something that this essay pointed out that i thought was very interesting was that especially in versions like this one 
it also emphasizes the worth of the emotional labor that the woman puts in, which other stories don't always, you know? Um, the hero rescues the princess by killing a monster, and that's it. He doesn't, you know, he doesn't seem to have a lot of internal suffering, generally. Um, and is it maybe an awful moral to tell women that if they go through enough internal suffering they can redeem their husband and bring him back to a full life and have a happy marriage? I mean, yes, definitely. But it's also true that a happy relationship does require sacrifices from both partners, and we understand that now socially. But if you didn't, and you didn't really have an opportunity to leave your husband, is the most useful thing to be taught that you can, to some extent, soothe and... I guess, vaguely manipulate your husband's emotional state to make your life and your children's life better. It's very cynical, but it's quite pragmatic, you know? Yeah. Yeah, because, I mean, ideally we would like to say, no, you can't change him, you have to leave him, but that's not necessarily an option that they had. Yeah. Um, this might be too big a tangent, I suppose, for folklore. Um, but I was reading a biography of Jane Austen, and um, obviously her novels are about women who marry a man that is wealthy and kind uh, and good and, you know, is objectively the happy ending. Um, and this biography was pointing out that the reason that she wrote these stories is because it was revolutionary. She knew of girls that would be... I had no idea that this was a practice. But if you were unmarried and poor, your family could pay for a one-way trip for you to be sent to India, where you would probably become a rich man's mistress. But that was probably the best you could do if you couldn't get married to someone in England. But for that, you'd have to just go and be the mistress of some man in the East India Company. Because it was counted as less bad because you weren't in, like, English society and people could pretend that they didn't know that that was what you were going to go and do. And that happened to her aunt. She knew of things like this. We, uh, like, this biography had letters of hers. And it just, it's... It's really really hard to articulate properly but it just highlights how how unromantic women had to be about marriage and how much they had to be aware of and actually why being able to fantasize a good marriage in which you redeem your husband and he's good and he values that kind of why it was so powerful and why it was so important to keep that hope alive in a story yeah, it's kind of, if you can't practically help them, at least you can give them some hope. Uh, you know, and not it's not like every marriage was like that. I do yeah. have a lot of issues with uh, the analysis that seems to suggest that men have just been unrepentantly awful up until <laughs> about the 1960s. Because um, mm. <laughs> that's just <laughs> nonsense. 
but your the cultural pressures were incredibly uncomfortable um, yeah like the problem is you're you're probably going to get married either way whether yeah. it's a good match and a happy match or not yeah it's interesting it's discomforting yeah. but it's interesting yeah i mean i guess a slightly nicer thing about this tale is that the bull at least in this version the bull is quite kind from the beginning mm. so at least in this one it feels more of a don't judge people's appearance when they could have a nice soul but yes um and like this tale itself is actually pretty optimistic you know where she is welcomed by all of the brothers uh, they give her the most beautiful gifts um but they're also going to save her life later on so they presumably know what's inside the fruit and why it's going to be so useful um you don't really have a true villain exactly i mean he goes and fights the old one which i think fair <laughs> to say is probably the devil yeah um and i you can argue that the girl herself has to fulfill a moment of villainy right mm. to then have to go on this atonement journey where she mm. has to work for seven years and all kinds of things um, yeah but you don't have a genuinely antagonistic evil person who's trying to be cruel um, yeah yeah there's kind of i mean not to skip ahead too far, but like the washerwoman and her daughter slash in some versions that's like the witch and her daughter or it's mm -hmm. just the witch trying to marry him. Yeah. You know, like they're um they're antagonistic but not evil. They just also want to marry him. Bit rough to be burned. Oh like I know. <laughs> bad to like give somebody a sleeping draft, definitely. Yeah. Don't like you know, that. Oh, wow, burned. Well, like, when I was writing, when I was writing out our version of it, you know, I, the kind of editor bones in my body really wanted to remove that sentence because <laughs> it's it's such a kind of it's quite a gentle, hopeful story, and yeah. it's just like, and he had them burned. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not even like banished or even killed if you still want to kill them but be nice no. burned is like it's quite graphic it's not a nice way to kill somebody um yeah no. it felt like a serious shift in the emotional tone <laughs> just for the last sentence yeah yeah but yeah it was there so i was like i i can't remove it so there <laughs> there it is I guess going back to kind of chronologically where we were. Yeah. Um, food from the bull's ears. I have 
I have some stuff on this. Okay, um, good. But first, first off, I found a story, another story that mentions food coming from a bull's ears. And uh, it was like a very funny story because of the different things that were coming into it, the different components, as well as... So he, the main character is fighting a giant and the giant begs him not to kill kill him and it just says, I think not, and he chops off its head. <laughs> and he does, he does wow. that three times. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. So this story is, uh, supposedly it's an Irish story called Billy Begg and His Bull. Um, okay. And itself it has some similar similarities to gold tree and silver tree um because mm-hmm. billy's mother the queen is pretending to be ill and saying she can't be cured unless she can uh drink a cup of billy's bull's blood so mm. it's like and this bull can talk and it's billy's best friend and oh. she hates it and oh. she just wants to drink its blood <laughs> Um, <laughs> so, I think that's so, taking things a bit far, personally. Yeah. So Billy and his bull run away, um, with with Billy riding on its back, and okay. he pulls he pulls food from the bull's left ear, and a magic sword from the bull's right the bull's right ear. Um. Mm-hmm. So then, the bull loses a fight to another bull and dies. Oh. And then. then Billy sits down and cries about it and I thought that's quite similar to the kind of turning point in our story where the bull wins the fight and she sits down and cries for a bit because he can't find her Mm -hmm. um so after he's done crying Billy then offers his services to a cattle herd Mm -hmm. and then he goes off and slays a bunch of giants for the cattle herd and then he hears that a princess is going to be sacrificed to a dragon. So at this point, it becomes more like acid battle. Okay. Um, so then he goes and kills the dragon. And then it becomes more like Rashi Coats because he runs away afterwards, but she catches his shoe. Oh, oh. And then when and then when they announce that she wants to marry the one who slayed the dragon, he proves that it's him by putting his foot into his shoe. <laughs> Oh, that's that's got some fun inversions and yeah. combinations of tales going on. Yeah, like it was it was a fun read. It really was. Mm. <laughs> but yeah, that was an example of food from a bull's ear. And I don't know if it relates or how it relates, but it had all these different elements from stories we'd already covered. So I was like, I have to describe this one. <laughs> oh, definitely. And I think it's... It's always interesting to see something that you recognise but in a slightly different flavour. Especially because then the context of something affects how you analyse it and whether it's like a self-conscious inversion that he's putting the shoe on instead of a woman and what we're saying in terms of like beauty standards and expectations of behaviour and, you know, it's interesting, yeah. Yeah, so there's some other examples of that happening, and there's yeah. definitely other examples of cows providing magical sustenance. And mm-hmm. so I was thinking about that, and I wondered, like, when did cows get domesticated? Mm-hmm. And it's generally thought that they were probably about the first large animal to be domesticated. 
And we yep. do know that people used oxen for their plows before horses, so um, therefore you then kind of get cattle with, as this animal that is providing you with uh, grain and vegetables as well as meat and milk. So oh, yeah, yep. Yeah, so I was kind of thinking in people's minds this becomes an animal that's associated with abundance and plenty and mm-hmm. a kind of like cornucopia. Mm-hmm. Yes, which would um, dovetail very nicely with the shape of an ear. So mm-hmm. um, it makes sense that eventually that would transmute itself into a bowl that's so magical that it can just produce the food fully formed. <laughs> um, that, that adds to the tale, because the first time I read that, I have to say, I just didn't like it. Uh, the mental image that I had uh, was Shrek, you know, <laughs> pulling the yeah, yeah. I knew the earwax no. candle. Yeah. Um, uh, I have to admit that the first note that I made about that whole area is just "what" in red <laughs> capitals because I was incredibly distressed. So I'm glad that you've given me a much nicer. Um, lens because obviously I didn't just stay there but yeah so then we have the gift of fruit and all I got on that was fruit is generally associated with abundance and I just couldn't really find much on why these specific fruits I have to admit I didn't look into these specific fruits but I did remember hearing Story, like reading little fairy stories and things as a child and there was one where somebody uh, the queen wanted to see something that no one had ever looked at before and somehow this was managed by like convincing her to cut open an apple I think and looking at the core of it and I think somehow there ended up being a diamond there Uh, (laughs) it was a story that I haven't read for a very long time obviously but there's clearly something about this idea that the inside of the fruit has a kind of hidden potential Mm. um and I guess the idea of associating what you would use as a sweet food um, before sugar was so accessible, like that by itself is luxury and is something of very high value. It would be a, a treat to be able to eat an apple or a pear or a plum, unless you were growing your own. Um, so yeah, it's it's probably again this idea of abundance and hidden treasure, I suppose.
So now we're kind of at the midpoint of the tale um, where the bull goes off to fight the old one and she's sitting on the rock. And I want to circle back to the thing about it going from eldest to youngest as we near the middle of the tale and then her growing up as we go from the middle of the tale to the end of the tale. So I have some like a bit more stuff on that. And for the purposes, I'm kind of visualizing the story as a valley. And the beginning of the story is the top of the hill on one side, the middle of the story is the bottom of the valley, and the end of the story is the top of the valley on the other side. So, so what I noticed in the versions that I read is that in the first half of the story, she's always being placed on the bill's back and lifted off by other people. She, she never does it herself. It's always someone else doing it. And so she has this real kind of passivity um, in that first part. And then we get into the middle part and she does slide off by herself here. Um, partly because there's no one to take her off, I guess. But I'm reading it as a hint <laughs> at her coming transformation, okay? <laughs> I, um, I like it. Yeah, so then... But in this middle bit, she kind of, she reaches the absolute kind of depths of her passivity because she just sits there and is not even allowed to move. Mm -hmm. um, and then, so this is kind of the kind of depths of despair. She's passive, she can't do anything. And by doing something, she, like, it all goes wrong. Yeah, so she's then she very kind much of... punished for not being the ultimate passive yeah. object. Um it's also yeah. an intrinsic part of the story that she fails this command. But anyway, as you were saying. Yeah. Yeah, and then so we're in the, the depths of the valley, mm -hmm. both figuratively and literally, because she's in a valley. Um, yeah. <laughs> yep. And then, um, and then she has to choose to act, and she has to get herself out of this, and she has to become an agent in her own story after this point. Mm -hmm. And that's her kind of climbing back out of the valley and to the end of the story. Yeah. So that was my, my take on that. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. And I, that's one of the most pleasing story formulas as well. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's what you tend to have. It's your three-act structure. It's um, the natural emotional trajectory that we respond well to yeah so we have this kind of real and it's mirrored with it's mirrored with kind of other elements in the story it's this kind of getting smaller and smaller and then getting bigger and bigger and stronger and stronger i guess cooler and cooler i'm pretty sure she's a certified blacksmith now or something <laughs> I hope so. Yeah, that's the question. Like, what is she doing in the world's strangest smithy um, that's by a hill of glass? What What is her job for seven years? Yeah, um, I mean, and the fact that seven years is considered um, the, well, was the kind of number of years an apprentice would serve, I, I was like, well, I'm pretty sure she she was a smith apprentice and now she's a blacksmith <laughs> legally <laughs> by law i decree yeah oh, definitely um she's now going to be 
the only uh, cool wife in the court that fixes her husband's armor. That's how their life works out now. Because um, <laughs> he's a knight and he needs that kind of support. It's practical, it's good. I love it. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, that's a good point about the seven years, actually, because I was wondering about what we could be trying to represent by this, because it's a very common number. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think it's also true that in common law in the UK at a certain point, if your husband or wife was missing for seven years, mm. they'd be legally counted as dead and you could remarry. Mm. So I wonder if that is also part of why it has to be seven years. Um, yeah. Because it, it means in a way she has to win him again properly um, yeah because there are some stories where they've already been married by this point but mm. by working for seven years and not being around each other and not having any proof mm. like he's essentially back on the market and it's why this other woman is such a threat yeah yeah that makes sense there's definitely I think there's definitely things in this story that we can choose to read. The number seven here is a kind of transformational Absolutely. number. Mm -hmm. So we kind of, we have the apprentice thing, like journey from unlearned to learned. And mm. um, she, like the text literally points out that she goes from a uh, girl to woman. And then um, it's then in the story is this kind of point where it's kind of making her ready to strike out and take control of her own life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, uh, like you say, it's a time for her to go from girl to woman, which works very nicely with the apprenticeship idea. Um, mm. Seven years is a very long time. Um, it would yeah. be a noticeable physical difference, especially if she's working in the smithy. You know, she, now she's super buff <laughs> and able to work, yeah. and walk in iron shoes up an incredibly steep <laughs> slope of glass. So yeah, yeah. So some things on the glass hill. I had a couple of thoughts. Um, so like in this version, it's like a slippery hill, and mm. for some reason, iron shoes are meant to help with that. Mm. Um, I thought it might be to do with iron being considered a kind of guard against enchantment. Mm -hmm. um, that they allow her to climb this really strange hill. Um, alternately, there's other versions where the hill is jagged instead of slippery. And I thought maybe the iron shoes were originally meant to protect against the jagged glass and making it slippery was somehow making it less scary or it was the inversion and the jagged glass came along in an attempt to explain why she needed iron shoes mm -hmm. um i think i'm tempted to to support the argument that it's to make it less scary because i think there are some variants where it talks about her having to wear out these shoes and her bleeding feet and things like that mm. and that makes more sense if the 
glass hill is sharp and jagged and is an active threat and that's why she needs this this protection to strike out and you know overcome the dangers but it's like you say it's also iron is supposed to be protective against fairies and things and there are some variants where she's not serving a smith exactly but that she actually has to go on a journey to hell or to serve the fairies or you know there's some fairly big variations Mm. but it's it's interesting that there's everyone's agreed that it's iron and I imagine that that is because of the supernatural associations of protection that it has yeah yeah if the iron is constant that does suggest it's kind of the Mm. longest running one yeah and, and then in some versions like at this point she after climbing the hill she comes back to the home of the original witch um and then in some versions she comes to kind of a city and it's a big wedding and it's her bull prince that's getting married to a witch mm-hmm. and um there is also yeah in the versions where in the version i read where she comes to a city and her prince is getting married to a witch in that one she had earlier removed a thorn from his hoof that half broke the enchantment and so she did actually get to see his human form and therefore be able to recognize him mm-hmm. um the line in our version about hit him being human but her just kind of knowing him anywhere i added that in because mm-hmm. otherwise it doesn't make sense and <laughs> We have, I felt justified in doing it because there are versions where she has seen his human form and does recognize him. And I thought she was clearly meant to know that it's him. Yeah. So I was like, well, <laughs> for the sake of clarity in our podcast, I'm just going to put this line in. <laughs> yeah, um, it's definitely worth having there as just um, a piece of clarity. But I think it's also, it's interesting because in some of them, instead of the uh, the taboo that she breaks being moving while he's fighting, it is looking at him at night. Um, that's like the original Cupid and Psyche variant of the story. So this yeah. girl is promised to a beast uh, by day and she's not supposed to look at her husband at night time when he comes to visit her. And then one night she does because she can't fight her curiosity anymore and she gets a candle and looks at him and it sometimes burns him or just wakes him up and that then is what parts them because she was specifically told not to do that and it's that type of story that makes more sense for her than knowing exactly what she's looking for to find him again so yeah we we needed to carry that through implicitly in our version as well because it's it's stated yeah. very explicitly elsewhere yeah yeah like i hate to make this a shrek heavy story <laughs> oh but um 
Yeah, I just couldn't help but think um, of the little rhyme from Shrek that Fiona says, by day one way, by night another. <laughs> like, it just kept coming into my head when I was reading this story, which I think is, like, we shouldn't punish ourselves too much for thinking of Shrek, because okay. Shrek is a kind of Beauty and the Beast thing, and so is this, so whatever, but... <laughs> You know, the argument that I thought you were going to give, which I know is in your heart, which is that <laughs> Shrek is a great film. Um, and I know that you think that, so. <laughs> but you, you're Shrek correct. Shrek is a it's great also, film. <laughs> like, it is also thematically relevant. Um, yeah. Because <laughs> like you say, it is a, a Beauty and the Beast retelling. Um, yeah. And the thing is, the more we talk about the problems with these traditional Beauty and the Beast stories, the more <laughs> I'm like, Shrek was really progressive, honestly. Uh, it... <laughs> so, um, just to continue emphasising Shrek, obviously, the uh, video that you sent me ages ago about how it's the perfect deconstruction, it, it just uh -huh. is, you know? Yeah. Um, it really, it does away with a lot of the uncomfortable undertones um, yeah. by always having them separate at night and they get to know each other and actually genuinely fall in love and, you know, it doesn't, that was one thing I was finding with all of the analysis that talks about the Cupid in Psyche, like, it's just incredibly creepy for your foundational story to be your woman character getting pregnant by her husband that she's not allowed to look at when he comes to visit her in nighttime. That's yeah, just horrendous beyond belief. So, uh, and I think once she gets to this part of the story, whoever's house it is, mm -hmm. um, the kind of first noticeable that must mean something thing is having to wash his bloody shirt mm -hmm. so I had I have a few notes on that um, yep. firstly I read that apparently that's quite a rare element it's come in a folktale it's not like seen everywhere mm -hmm. um, and there's a Russian fairy tale it does have it and originally I was thinking even if this is a rare element I wouldn't be super surprised if it was thought of independently because mm -hmm. it seems quite you know she has to signal that she's going to be a good wife by completing a domestic task for him that only she is able to do mm -hmm. and so there's that yeah. But reading this Russian story, there are a lot of similarities and Yes, lots. We clearly read the same thing. <laughs> yeah. And the bloody shirt makes more sense in it. So I have mm -hmm. a little summary. Um so the heroine has agreed to marry a falcon. Uh the falcon is injured and they're separated. She sets out to find him and she wears three pairs of iron shoes while she's looking for him. Mm -hmm. um, this is very simplistic because there are some other elements um, she's given three gifts by three witches she goes to the castle where the falcon is now a human and he's about to be married and then 
in some versions of this, she washes blood from his clothes that no one else can. And mm -hmm. it does make more sense in this one because he's injured before when they're separated. Yes. So that makes a bit more sense why this is a random element. So then she trades her three gifts with the bride so that she can spend the night in his room. She's confounded by a sleeping draft, but then on the third night he's warned about the sleeping draft, so he's awake to see her and they get married. Mm -hmm. So just based on how similar they are, I was I felt quite convinced that there was a relation there with the bloody shirt. Yeah. Um the whole ending of the story is too similar for all mm -hmm. of that to have come about coincidentally. Yeah. Um, I was also thinking, you also have a parallel, he's just been fighting what we will call the devil, um, and we don't have any proof that he wasn't injured. Um, so I guess you could argue that that's where the blood in this Black Bull story comes from, uh, on the shirt. But it's interesting because I also thought, okay, well, the obvious reason that she would be able to do this is, yeah, archetypal, perfect homemaker. It's Snow White learning how to clean the dwarf house. It's, you know, crops up a lot. But it feels, feels a bit too simplistic to me. Maybe I'm just bored of that being the explanation. <laughs> um, like, I'm sure it, it factors in. But I was also wondering if it's maybe maybe more optimistic than that and it's more about her capacity to heal and redeem as in wash away the guilt um and the sin and kind of the blood on the hands idea um that she's able to wash away with her suffering and striving for them which would make this more of um, an atonement story, I guess, than a, a Beauty and the Beast version. Uh, it depends how how far we're going to follow the line of analysis that some people do, which is that she is punished for not fulfilling the injunction and has to sacrifice a lot to get her husband back. I think our version has that less clearly, but there are some versions where they're married and she has three children and the three children are all kidnapped and it's only after that that she breaks the injunction and like she has to see the children being taken care of by other families and sometimes she has to ransom these children for the gifts that she then barters for the three nights with the husband with so those are stories where it feels more evident that she's being punished shall we say so they might be ones like where her capability to wash a stain away is is more important for, for the characters and the arc of the story but I don't I'm not convinced that our version of that needs that explanation 
it's it's kind of the problem with comparing so many variants. Yeah, yeah. Like, I have a kind of explanation that I think requires too much legwork on the part of the reader. I don't mm -hmm. think it's really a valid explanation. Okay. Um, so, but it, I don't know, might be interesting anyway. Um, so there's kind of some elements in other stories about uh, this person who's the only person who can clean a piece of cloth or something, mm -hmm. and usually it's because the piece of cloth has been tarnished by them, so it's like only she can clean her own tears off of yes. the cloth. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and given that this is blood and they were like supposed to be previously married and whatever and it's blood on like a piece of cloth like we all know what blood usually means <laughs> <laughs> yeah in these kinds of stories about um mm -hmm. loss of virginity and loss of purity and then she's the only one who can clean it because maybe it's implied to be her blood or something mm -hmm. like I feel like that does work, but it is also, there's just not enough there in the story to really support it, but yeah, it's yeah. there. You could very much have that. I think that would be a lot easier to argue in other variants, but again, that's something that feels feels like a likely explanation, you know, it, that would crop up somewhere. Um, there's also, I suppose we don't have to have the that is, it doesn't necessarily have to be a, a sexual explanation. Her claim over this blood, if you will, if it's his blood, might be more of a trying to... trying to prove her identity, trying to prove that they're soulmates, this kind of... this control over each other, um, bond to each other. But that's not very common. You know, that's not usually how you would express that idea. Yeah. I had kind of I had kind of noted that idea mm -hmm. down as a sort of a kind of sympathetic magic. Yes. Um Yeah, exactly. Kind of their hearts beat the same, his blood is her blood, that kind of thing. Yeah. So there's that too. Yeah, which I think is maybe the sweetest explanation that we can give. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, and for that reason, I wanted to highlight it. So I th I do think there's some kind of weird, obvious connotations with her bargaining to spend the night with him and then she can't because he's asleep I mean I find it very weird I'm like I mean I guess it's just supposed to be that his current potential bride is supposed to be greedy and doesn't really care about him um but she's just like yeah I don't care I'll sell my husband for money yeah <laughs> like you can spend the night with him it's uh, especially in this variant where it's the washer woman herself not the daughter that drugs him the daughter yeah. that's going to marry him could not care less um it's got to be the mum that steps in yeah uh, it's different 
you know, it, it's the witch trying to marry him and it's the witch brewing the potion, presumably, and she's kind of in charge of the whole thing. That feels more reasonable. Um, it's it's definitely strange. I do find it interesting that um, it's maybe an inversion to her ultimate passivity earlier on that she fails like he he is forced to be passive unnaturally and when he fails at that if you will fails to take the potion that's the only way they can be reunited there's, there's something going on here about men being unnaturally passive versus women being unnaturally active if you want to be cynical but um, I don't like to be cynical, so. <laughs> yeah, that if they've both now kind of, it's almost like because they've now both broken a passivity in a way, it then puts them back on the same sort of, I don't know, wavelength, timeline, yeah, universe thing. <laughs> Yes, um, like in a way you could argue, so one of the notes that I was making is that potentially you could say that we're getting two maturation hero stories, um, mm. it's just that his is out of focus, but mm. from his perspective he's defeated whatever curse makes him a bull. Um, mm -hmm. And then he's defeated the potential curse of the sleeping potion leading him to marry the wrong woman. Um, he's mm -hmm. had the seven years of growth that she's had, presumably, mm -hmm. unless she was in a different realm and time passed differently. But, you know, setting that potential aside. Um, and maybe this final reflection of him making the active choice to be present, wake up, be with her, talk to her. Uh, like you say, yeah, it finally puts them on the same level. They're both finally mature enough to get married and live happily ever after. Yes. Yeah. Whole enough to do so. Yeah. And it's so in, in the version that is most similar to the one that we told um, the in that one there's just kind of no mention of how she knows it's him and all that kind of thing mm -hmm. so then the fact that he sees her but doesn't recognize her that was from a different version um, mm -hmm. so yeah it's like he hears her voice and what she's saying to him and that kind of causes him to remember her uh, weirdly because she's telling him about things that he doesn't know that she did <laughs> <laughs> yeah he has absolutely no idea um, it's a strange story they would be talking for a very long time if they had to cover everything that happened to them in seven years Yeah, you know, that's not yeah. one night's worth of conversation yeah, and in the, in the, it's the version where the witch is marrying him or something, it just says he, he hears her voice and it all comes back to him and suddenly he remembers her. 
Mm-hmm. But yeah, <laughs> I think that that works if you make the witch responsible for kind of all of the evil magic in the tale, you know. Um, and you can even, if you want to make him very sympathetic, you could imagine that the witch has cursed him to forget that he knew a girl and that's why he hasn't gone looking for her in these seven years and is happy to move on and things you know like you could you could make the witch the full villain of the tale um i imagine some of them she is but i don't think i actually remember reading one where she's explicitly attributed all of the obstacles that the couple face I wonder if there's something in either his transformation back into a human or that combined with the fact that she moves that is to do with him forgetting. We don't really have enough of his point of view to know, but um, Mm -hmm. it could be when he says that he won't be able to find her again, maybe it's because he forgets that she exists yeah maybe she has to stay exactly the way she is as he knew her when he was a bull for him to be able to remember her and find her again once he's a human mm-hmm. something like that yeah but that would be yeah that i mean that would be a, a neat explanation that would please me not necessarily <laughs> a sort of analytical symbolic <laughs> explanation for this well, no, but it feels like the type of fairy tale logic you get, you know? Um, yeah. You just have to jump through this hoop because there's a weird loophole of fairy lore. And so if you were the same as when he left you, he'd be able to find you again, even though he had no memory. It doesn't exactly yeah. make sense, but if it was in a fairy tale, you'd be like, yeah, okay, fair enough. Yeah, so that's kind of it. That's the end of um, anything I had to say. I suppose the only thing I have is that there are some variants. So I guess, again, talking about why sometimes he's a beast. Sometimes he's Mm. cursed. Sometimes we don't really get an explanation like in this one. Uh, And then sometimes the taboo that she breaks is burning the beast skin that he wears so sometimes he has a bull skill bull skin Mm. even or Mm. like a wolf skin or whatever and Mm. she burns it one night because she sees him as a human and wants to keep him human Uh, so that's an interesting inversion to selkie skin stories where the woman's selfie skin is taken by usually a fisherman who wants to marry her and eventually she gets it back and returns to the sea. Um, Which is a very different emotional tone to a story like this Black Bull version where in destroying the skin like she destroys the relationship and has to go and make amends there's never a call for amends 
in a sulky story, even though there absolutely should be. Um, uh huh. <laughs> so yeah, just wanted to, I guess, highlight that, and we'll probably get into the con- concept of um, beast bridegrooms and brides whenever we do a sulky story more properly. Uh, but it's interesting that it's so ubiquitous, but that you can have such different contexts for it. Yeah. I definitely find all the kind of variations of this story to be quite a compelling argument for this version being quite pared down and sanitized. Yeah. Yep. And especially, and then that makes kind of slightly more sexual interpretations of some of the events that makes them more valid not to be Freudian about things but (laughs) yes uh I mean so Cupid and Psyche the the whole story is incredibly sexual I mean the allegory itself is about the idea of what complete romantic love ought to look like yeah Um, there's kind of no way of getting away from that (laughs) as much as we Mm. both hate freud um (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah it's it's an interesting story it's got a lot going on and i really think (laughs) with all the variations Maybe a a modern uh, writer could kind of wrangle it into something that would be really quite fun. <laughs> I think so, because there's so many variants that you could easily you could find variations and combine them in such a way that you could make it appropriate for our current standard of. Yeah, morals and relationship requirements. Um, yeah, and I think it would be a way of updating how we see things nowadays, um, and reflecting that in the stories that we tell each other and that we hold on to culturally. Thank you for listening to the Folklore Scotland podcast. We'll be back every single week with new folklore content from stories to analysis, so stay tuned. Folklore Scotland is a charity founded to protect and preserve Scottish folklore through taking a multimedia approach to compiling and sharing folktales, telling the tales of the past with the technology of today. If you'd like to find out more about our charity, visit FolkloreScotland.com and if you're keen to become a voluntary contributor and would like to get in touch, send us an email at info at FolkloreScotland.com. You can also find all of our social media links and a link to a written version of this story in the show notes. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.